Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I cut through the BS and lay out what the gaslighting clowns pulled out of their hats this week and what is coming next. A few days ago, Jerome Powell gave an interview on 60 Minutes, a proper masterclass in gaslighting with doublespeak. Having said, there were a couple gems in there that set the media a flutter. One was Jerome finally confessing that, quote, the federal government is on an unsustainable fiscal path. As in, our federal deficits are getting to the point of destabilizing the entire financial system, as well as bankrupting our grandkids. Of course, it would have been super if Jerome had realized this before he spewed out $6 trillion of freshly printed dollars, almost one in four in existence at the time, which led to the worst inflation crisis since the 1970s. Still, it is rare for Fed chairs to criticize federal spending at all. Not because trillion-dollar deficits are harmless. Fed chairs know full well that every dollar the government spends makes the productive economy smaller. No, the reason Fed chairs keep quiet is they know who butters their bread, and it ain't voters. After all, the president appoints Fed members, Congress confirms them, and the people only have the illusion of control given that elections are largely bought. Now, in case you're hoping Powell's criticism heralds a new honest Fed, it does not. Because his next shtick was how the Fed didn't really cause inflation after all. It just sort of happened because COVID. Next, Powell talked about the banks after being asked about the Fed's failure to even monitor Silicon Valley Bank, which you'll recall actually had a Federal Reserve official on their board, presumably providing regulatory immunity since they all play golf together. Now, Powell, to his credit, admitted that they failed. Of course, that won't change anything. In the same interview, he cooed how banking troubles are, quote, manageable. Since any failed regionals will just get bought by bigger banks, that will be the clip at the next catastrophic bank crash. As for the Fed's role in these constant bank crashes, we just had another near crash last week in New York. Powell was mum on the Fed's interest rate yo-yos that are crashing banks, as well as those regulatory relationships that keep the problems hidden just promises that he will try harder next time. It's worth noting the Fed was also very forthright in admitting that it screwed up 2008, while Jerome himself admitted they screwed up transitory inflation with the memorable, quote, I think we now understand how little we understand inflation. So the Fed breaks everything it touches, it happily admits it, and yet nothing changes. So what is next? Sadly, what wasn't asked during the interview was whether the Federal Reserve should exist. If a central planning, politicized water carrier for the regime that habitually destabilizes the economy and crashes the financial system might not actually be a good thing, particularly one that deceives the American people while enabling Wall Street and the federal government to rob Americans to the tune of several trillion dollars. Of course, those kinds of questions are probably above the pay grade of 60 Minutes, but perhaps one day Jerome Powell will actually face a tough questioner who makes him tell us why we shouldn't put the miserable, incompetent, corrupt Federal Reserve out of business. Joe Biden has had it up to here with the shrinkage. He needs a break. A few days ago, the elderly men with poor memory whose henchmen are deconstructing our nation put out a Super Bowl ad complaining about the inflation they caused. In the ad, Biden went after companies for so-called shrinkflation when they keep the price the same but reduce the size. He accused companies of trying to pull a fast one and playing the American people for, quote, suckers. Now, you know Biden was serious because he did ask them to give him a break. He didn't name names, but several brands were visible in the ad, including Doritos, Gatorade, and Breyers ice cream. 
Of course, companies have been doing precisely that, reducing portion sizes, because customers cannot afford the products they could before this mentally challenged president unleashed the worst inflation in 50 years. To the point that groceries cost 25% more and household paper products, that's toilet paper for muggles, cost 35% more. Those are official numbers, of course. People posting their actual grocery bills online say the inflation is a lot worse, even with the shrinkage. Pile on rising green regulations that lay new costs on food producers, allegedly for global warming, and you've got a one-two punch driving up costs. Now, government scapegoating the things they break is nothing new, and usually they do go after companies who are less sympathetic in public opinion. In a pinch, they will go after consumers as well. A few months ago, I mentioned a wave of mainstream articles blaming the American people for inflation. One gem from Atlantic Magazine was literally titled Inflation is Your Fault, complaining that, quote, if people are so mad about high prices, why do they keep buying so many expensive things? So if you buy food when it's gone up, you are part of the problem. So is it true? Are America's grocers pulling a fast one? In fact, groceries are one of the lowest margin businesses in existence. The industry-wide margin is 2.2%, so they make 2.2 cents on the dollar. That means that when the federal government prints up $7 trillion of fresh dollars, courtesy of the Federal Reserve, and then dump those $7 trillion into the money supply, grocers are faced with two choices. They can either raise prices or they can reduce portions. Now, if American families were swimming in money, of course, they would just raise the price. But when, as now, 96% of Americans are worried about the economy, they can't afford those higher prices, and so shrinkflation it is. So what's next? Ever since Biden's inflation took off, Washington has been champing at the bit to not only scapegoat that inflation, but to use it as an excuse to seize even more power over food. We are seeing kinetic pushback in Europe, which is already several years ahead on the green jihad. But even these schemers in Congress are busily trying to convert the scapegoat into fresh regulation. One recent report by Democrat Bob Casey was released to, quote, hold companies accountable for higher grocery prices, which in Washington means to seize control and command of the industry on behalf of activists and lobbyists. Elizabeth Warren has been on the warpath for years now, trying to do to food what she has already done for banking. Happily, the American people are not buying it. A fresh poll from ABC says almost 90% think Biden is not fit to serve. He will, of course, keep ranting. Congress will keep scheming, but hopefully we'll have new management before they break food to the point that we are down to the bugs. I'm a big fan of saving Bitcoin for the long term, and the Unchained Bitcoin IRA is a great way to do that. You get the tax advantages, and if it's a Roth IRA, you're not going to pay capital gains so long as you hodl. Most Bitcoin IRAs make you give up control, which can expose you to exchange hacks or even relend it out like banks do. With Unchained, you control the keys to your Bitcoin, which means you always know it's there. They also provide one-on-one concierge service to walk you through it and answer any questions. Why pay more taxes than you need to? Set it up today at Unchained.com. Use promo code PETER to get $100 off a Bitcoin IRA. Inflation is back like a zombie spawned from the banker-infested bowels of the Federal Reserve. Fresh CPI numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics say annualized inflation last month jumped to 3.7%, compared to 2.8% the previous month, 1.9% the month before that, and under 1% back in the halcyon days of October. 
Spot the trend. Core inflation, which strips out food and energy and is taken by the Fed as the real CPI, was even worse, jumping to an annualized 4.8%, up from 3.4% the previous month. For those keeping score, that makes this the 34th consecutive month with annual inflation above 3%, so much for transitory. In response, prediction markets slashed their predictions for rate cuts, pricing in just four cuts down from seven a month ago. So markets now expect rates to end this year at four and a quarter, so that's just a percent below current levels. So call it six and a half percent mortgages. A month ago, they expected 3.5. That matters because it keeps pressure on banks, especially the regional banks that are currently drowning in commercial real estate debt. Just a few days ago, we saw a prime office building in Ohio, a former FedEx complex, go for $9 per square foot. To put that in perspective, $9 a square foot would be about $18,000 for a typical house. At $9 a square foot, you can be sure whoever built that thing lost their shirt. And there are billions like it. So regional banks are currently holding $300 billion worth of commercial real estate debt, making up a third of their loan holdings, so about a third of their assets. I mentioned just a few days ago Jerome Powell on 60 Minutes saying bank risks are manageable after yet another bailout at New York Community Bank. Specifically, he said regionals may fail, but they'll get bought up by the majors. Well, with high rates now going on for another year, that could come pretty fast. Beyond the bank's larger issue here is a nightmare scenario I've been talking about in recent videos, a double peak inflation like we saw in the 1970s. In that episode, much like today, out-of-control federal spending drove inflation to double digits. Back then it was so-called guns and butter, meaning the Vietnam War and the welfare industrial complex that was turning swaths of America's cities into permanent slums where people live on government benefits instead of working. Now, back then, as soon as the Fed saw the edge come off inflation, they pulled back on the rates, at which point inflation took off into a gallop, running much higher and much longer, ultimately five years, and it only ended with Fed Chair Volcker's scorched earth rates policy, which probably will never happen again since it cost his boss, Jimmy Carter, his job. So what's next? In the near term, beyond the banks and runaway inflation, the biggest concern is one I've talked about. If inflation is jumping, why is the Fed still cutting rates? So normally they'd be holding the line, but cutting into inflation suggests that they expect a very severe recession, whatever calming noises Powell makes on 60 Minutes. It's increasingly looking like the Fed has lost control, control of inflation after 34 months and rising, control of federal spending having turned the Fed into kept women of the regime, and control of the economy with recession goose-stepping them to cut rates into inflation. I'm increasingly worried about a 1970s stagflation that, given the talent in Washington, could go on longer than five years. In a sign of what's coming for America, our neighbors to the north are getting crushed by taxes, even as Canada's soaring inflation and house prices turn middle-class salaries into barely scraping by. I've mentioned, Canon in recent videos how socialism and activist central banking have delivered an economy that's essentially West Virginia pay with California taxes and million-dollar homes. A recent survey from the Fraser Institute lists 24 ways Canadians are getting crushed, starting with the fact that Canadian wages have been stagnant since 2016, that's eight years, to the point the average Canadian now earns almost $18,000 less than an American. There's no cavalry coming, but the OECD predicting Canada will be the worst-performing advanced economy all the way to 2060, 
Now, the OECD includes some pretty lame company. Most of Europe is deindustrializing thanks to greens in Ukraine. Japan is muddling along as usual. And here in the US, we'd be deep in stagflation if Washington were not buying it out with debt. The worst of that bunch is like being the slowest runner at the body positive marathon. Canada's actually been nosediving since 2014, when Justin Trudeau first came to power. Business investment tanked from 79 cents per dollar of salary to just 55, so that's down almost a third, as 285 billion of investment capital fled Canada over 3 trillion in U.S. terms. What's replacing productive investment? Government. Government workers are growing almost four times faster than the private sector thanks to a doubling in government spending and a doubling in debt. Canadian taxpayers are currently generously paying the salaries to 4.1 million government employees, that is equivalent to almost 35 million government workers in U.S. terms. And that comes to one in five workers in Canada who are paid 31% more than the productive workers they force to pay their salary. In fact, the average Canadian now pays almost half their income to these parasites, more than Canadians spend on housing and food combined. As always, the bigger government gets, the worse it gets. It's most stark in government-run healthcare, which has completely collapsed since COVID, with notoriously long wait times going from 9 weeks to 28 weeks, even for, quote, medically necessary treatment. In fact, tens of thousands of Canadians flee to America or Mexico, paying cash out of pocket, instead of suffering in bed for six months waiting on hip surgery. So what's next? What's driving Canada's collapse is simple. Its government is taking over, and its environmentalists have turned into what Black calls a green terror, banning or taxing every productive sector of the economy, especially energy. To give a flavor, one study found environmental mandates alone add $55,000 to the cost of a new Canadian home. Now, Canadians can see what's happening. One poll found 74% think government is too big and they're being overtaxed. And they blame Justin Trudeau, who is currently among the least popular leaders on earth, even worse than Joe Biden. The one ray of hope is a federal election next year where apple-munching populist hero Pierre Polyev is tipped to depose Trudeau. But even if Pierre wins, he'll be up against government unions, remember that's one in five workers, who make America's deep state look like a pussycat. So either way, there's a lot more dark days for Canadians, and Americans are not far behind. This podcast is supported by our sponsor, MoneyMetals.com, the most trusted bullion dealer and depository in the United States. Known for their competitive pricing, excellent customer service, and fast delivery of physical gold and silver, as well as their educational content and advocacy for sound money policies at the state and federal level. They have set the industry standard for selling, buying, and storing precious metals. If you're looking to help protect yourself against inflation and market turmoil, I hope you'll give them a try. To learn more or to buy your physical gold and silver, go to MoneyMetals.com. Why are Americans so down on the economy when Joe Biden's own statisticians say he is doing an amazing job? Recently, the Wall Street Journal published a 3,000-word essay on that very question. That's 10 pages paperback. Note, the journal has been among Joe Biden's most loyal cheerleaders, so one might almost read this as an apology. They kick off noting that Americans are spending briskly. Inflation has come down from the Biden highs, although new numbers say it's rising again. And GDP just turned in a solid 3.1% for the year. Official unemployment has been below 4% for 24 straight months, the longest stretch since the 1960s. It is morning in America. And yet, in opinion surveys, Americans almost universally think Biden is doing a crap job, with just one in seven Americans saying they're better off since Joe was installed. 
Dude, Biden has the worst approval ratings for a third-year president in the history. Suck on that, Jimmy Carter. The journal ventures some explanations, including that a college degree is no longer a golden ticket to the middle class, the endless wars, and the, quote, uninspiring leadership and a government, quote, widely seen as dysfunctional, the border and America's crime-ravaged urban hellholes being exhibit A. Of course, they missed the big one, which is that maybe those numbers are fake. Not necessarily fake as in they made them up from thin air, although there's a fair amount of that lurking in things like seasonal adjustment or hedonic adjustment for inflation. No, more like fake as in the statistical series are cherry-picked to ignore the many elephants in Joe Biden's economy. So take unemployment. 4% is stellar until you recall that unemployment doesn't count people who have dropped out of the workforce. It only counts people actively looking for work. So all those fentanyl addicts sleeping on the streets of Philadelphia are statistically retired. They're not unemployed. Neither are the 6 million-plus Americans who dropped out of the labor force since COVID, likely forever. Count them and you're close to 7% unemployment, which is actually pretty bad comparable to the lead-in to 2008. It's similar with GDP, the other big economic number. That solid GDP is driven by federal deficits, buying growth, and soaring social spending both of which are bankrupting us, they are not making us rich like GDP is supposed to. It's similar with consumer spending, fueled by soaring levels of personal debt, rampant doom spending, and now jumps in defaults. In short, Americans aren't spending because they're optimistic, they're spending to keep their head above water. And finally, the big one, inflation. I've mentioned in recent videos how the progress in inflation has entirely been one-offs from supply chains and energy, while underlying inflation kept marching almost twice the Fed's target and now rising. So sure, Americans are feeling down because they're led by a demented moron who starts wars in between drools while importing every welfare case who might vote Democratic, but it's more that the everything-is-fine narrative is built on lies, built on statistics that are very carefully crafted to hide, not to inform. So what's next? It's progress for mainstream media to even consider the possibility that Americans might have a point when they say things are tough. Still, we've got a ways to go until media fully understands how much it has been gaslit by a regime that has given up on serving the people. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode fresh in your inbox and go to petersanange.com to read the weekly articles with charts and all the gory details. Okay, we'll be watching. See you next time.